0: Will you open your Bibles to Romans chapter 11? It's page 810. If you're using one of the Bibles in the seats. You know, I was thinking about today uh, being kind of a special day. I think I want to uh Romans Romans is deep. And then the deep part of Romans is nine through eleven. So we're like deep in the deep. And it's a baptism Sunday. So I think I think you'll understand if I just want to step out a little bit. Um, uh, you know, I kind of think of it like, you know, you're visiting with a friend, you've ever been visiting a friend over something, and you've you've gotten deep in the conversation, whatever the subject matter is. And then another friend shows up. You want, you want that friend to be in, but you kind of, in order to do that, you kind of have to step out a little bit. So that's what we're going to do this morning a little bit. We're just, uh, maybe we'll review a little bit. And I assume, is since we're heading into summer, that maybe some of you could benefit from the review. But I also just want to welcome anyone who's coming to uh, the Bible New or uh, Romans New. Uh, because Romans coming to the Bible new in Romans eleven, there's an award for that. Uh, so, this is an idea that will uh, uh, maybe help carry us towards the end. I think this is true in lots of places. Certainly, is true in the military. They love to uh, tear performance. So, you can go into the regular army, um, but if you want to be the best of the best, you go there, right? And then once you get there, if you really want to be the cream of the crop, you go there. And then while you're there, if you want to be a cut above the rest, you go there. And they do that until they run out of phrases of top tier, top shelf, second to none. It 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 actually goes on forever and ever and ever. Um, when I went to uh, my first year at the academy, there were 1,232 students, I think, 1,232 cadets in my class. We graduated with under 800. Um, It was like 30-some percent attrition. Uh, And it almost all happened in the freshman year. Freshman year, academics was, it's so hard. We had a club. We had a club we called the Square Root Club, which was a club reserved for those students where their GPA was larger if you took the square root of it which for those of you who are not good at math, that means when your GPA was less than one, you were in the square root club as you packed your bags. Uh, But there was always this talk of cream of the crop, uh, best of the best. It was this sort of attitude to spur you on to the next level of supposed greatness, but it exists. It exists not in the middle. You could go uh, to a hundred different things in our community Uh, I mean, you could be training to work in a checkout line somewhere, and someone could say, we're really just, we're going to try to train. There's 15 of you here. We only have space for 13, so we're looking for the cream of the crop. And, I mean, that language, it has this idea of whittling the total number down to get to those who are deserving of the honor, those who are really good. This morning in the Bible, we're going to get to a word that has some of this in mind. The word is remnant. The Bible's going to use the word remnant. And there's a lot of similarities between talking about a remnant and talking about the best of the best or the cream of the crop. But there are also, there's also an important difference. And it's in the difference that everything exists. So uh, let's set out. Look at 11, verse 1, will you? Now, the author of Romans is an apostle named Paul. Paul is writing a letter to the church in Rome around 57 AD, so not too long after the death of Christ. He's writing a letter to uh, the Romans, and in the church of Rome, there are, we believe, several well, at least one very significant faction which is occupying the attention of Paul at this moment, which is those who were uh, Jews, observant Jews, who have heard the message of Christ and have received it in some measure. Okay, They're attracted to the message of Jesus Christ, the story of grace through the death and resurrection of Christ, that they're they're drawn to it, but they have a lot of concerns. So there's a faction in the church that has a lot of concerns about what does, their, what does all of their Judaism mean in, in light of this story of Jesus. And by and large, this group of Jewish Christians is noting that nearly all of their Jewish brothers and sisters are not, they're not signing up for Jesus. They're not having it. And so Paul is asking this question on their behalf, first verse in 11. I ask them, has God rejected his people? Has God rejected his people? They're looking around at essentially the wholesale letting go of Jesus by the Jewish community. And he's anticipating that even the Jewish Christians are wondering, is this a sign that God's entirely rejecting us as a people? Because they look over and those who are not Jews, they call them Gentiles, the Gentiles are uh, coming to the Lord in large numbers and experiencing, so they're coming out of their pagan traditions and their their total lack of morality and total lack of religion and all of these are coming to the Lord in large numbers from those corners of the community. But among the Jewish community, the very community that, that should own the story of Christ, they're walking away. And they want to know, is, is it because, is God just cutting us out? Is that, the, is that what's happening? God's cutting us, cutting us out and this is their question. Now to be clear, there's reasons why the Jewish community is walking away from Jesus, and it's very important. By and large, Jewish practice by this time had become legalistic and tradition-centric. What I mean to say is, is uh, the Jewish faith that God instituted was a religion with rules. But they had turned it to a religion of rules. They had made the second things first. They had majored in the minors, so to speak. So they had taken a religion that had rules, and they had warped it into a religion of rules. And then they had built their identity around it. We are good in this religion because we follow the rules. You can imagine when Jesus Christ came and the message was, you need to repent because you are a rule breaker, how that would have pushed against their false religion, right? They were idolizing the rules. They'd done the same things with traditions. God had built a religion with uh, traditions and customs and ordinances uh, with the intent of pointing towards himself, and they had taken a religion with traditions and had made it a religion of traditions. So they felt far too safe in the fact that they were born a Jew. I mean, you don't, you don't really have to know anything about history to identify with this. I mean, this is relevant uh, to religion today. People who feel valid before the divine because they were born into something. Or because they grew up amidst a custom that had that word in it. They're good because there were things, religious things, hanging on the walls, and religious things, uh, religious festivals. I mean, this—you don't have to know anything about history to identify with this. You just need to know about our history in this area. Well, that was largely the—that was largely the Jewish predicament at the time. Was they had come to worship the laws, the rules. And build their identity around the rules. And they had come to worship the customs and traditions. And they had built their identity around the customs and traditions. And when Jesus Christ came, he said, neither are you a rule follower, but you are not righteous. You need to repent before the Lord. Which kind of shook that tree. And, and then he also took the customs and the traditions that they had had. And he reframed them in light of him. In other words, they had built their religion around the rules and customs and he came and said, no, the rules and customs are to be understood around me. I am the center about which you understand everything that God has given you. And they hated that. And because of that, they hated Christ. And now we find that the few in the Jewish community still listening to the message of Christ are wondering, has God rejected us entirely? Has God given up on us? So let me read verses 1 and 2, and, uh, and we'll proceed. I ask then, has God rejected his people? <clears throat> By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Let's just stop there for a second. So, so Paul's first argument to the idea that God rejected his people is he kind of points at himself and goes, well, what does that make me? Of course he's not rejected his people because I am his people and I am in Christ. And he's speaking, I mean, the moment he says that, someone listening would realize, oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, if there are Jews who are following Jesus Christ, then the notion of God entirely leaving his people just doesn't stand. I mean, Paul's pointing to himself, but to a bigger idea of, of course not. Jesus was a Jew. The apostles were Jews. I, an apostle to the Gentiles, am a Jew. There's, there's, there's Jewish followers of Jesus uh, all around, not many, but all around us. And then he points in the second verse to the, the affection that God has shown Israel in the past and says, listen, God has not rejected the people he once knew. God has not rejected the people he has formerly so intimately known, nor is he done with them. Um. My, tem- my temptation is to, is to jump ship and talk. This is being said in light of the nation of Israel. So there's particulars that belong to the nation of Israel here. So I'm really not trying to jump ship except to say that that is, there is God's nature in that, that we can, we can find encouragement with of uh, God not giving up on his people. Um. And I think there's great encouragement in that. That God doesn't give up so quickly. But here, then, then Paul does this, and I want to spend a little bit of time on this. This is the middle of two. <clears throat> he reaches back to an old story. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah how he appeals to God against Israel. And then he quotes Elijah. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I've kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed a knee to Baal. It's a fitting story, um, let me, let me just tell it, tell it to you a little bit. Uh, and it's in First Kings, if you ever want to read First Kings 18 and 19. But Elijah was a prophet to Israel. Elijah, uh, God uses prophets when either he's on the move or his people are in trouble. And Elijah was called to the latter problem. The people were walking away from the Lord. And so he called Elijah. Now, Elijah was ministering in a time when King Ahab was king of Israel and his wife Jezebel was changing the face of worship in Israel. In fact, the back end of her name reflects that, Jezebel. She was the daughter of a priest king of Baal. And she had brought the worship of Baal into Israel and was systematically eradicating the prophets and priests of God. She was killing them and instituting her prophets, the prophets and priests of Baal. And there's this one point where the Lord uh, allows or or authorizes Elijah to have a throwdown with Baal. So he goes to Ahab and he says, I mean, there's been a a warrant out for Elijah's death for some time now. Elijah's been in hiding for years. And one day just walks into the king's chambers pretty much and says, you and me, tomorrow, Mount Carmel, it's go time. And he says, bring all the prophets of Baal and bring all the Israelites. The time is now. The time Now is the time that we're going to decide who's God of Israel. So the next day, it's kind of an okay corral scene, but on the top of a mountain overlooking the Mediterranean. The next day, all the Israelites gather up there. 450 prophets of Baal are up there. Elijah's up there. And Elijah says his great words. He says, how long will you limp between two gods? Isn't that a good word? How long are you going to limp between them? He says, if it's Baal, worship him. But if it's God, worship him. And they set up this test. They say, we're going to build two altars. One altar to Baal, where the 450 prophets of Baal can seek Baal, seek his power to light this altar, and I, lonely little Elijah, will go over here, and I'll build my lonely little altar, and I'll call out to my lonely little God, and we'll see what he does. And so the people say, that sounds right, that sounds like a fair competition, do that. So they do that, and the 450 prophets of Baal, they build this altar, and from early morning all the way to noonday, they cry out to the Lord. So much so that Elijah over in his little corner of the world starts to tease him. He says, what is your God not here?" Is he relieving himself? Is he not awake? Can he not hear you? And it goes beyond noonday to the point where it says, in their custom, the prophets of Baal begin to cut themselves and stab themselves and pierce themselves. So they're a bloody, disparate mess by the end of the, the, the noonday, and nobody's paying attention to them. And then Elijah says, my turn. And he calls it, it's really a beautiful moment. He, almost as though he wants the Israelites to see what holiness looks like. He, says, he g- says, Gather around me. And he takes 12 stones, one for each tribe, and he puts them on top of one another. And then he digs a trench around the altar. And, he, and uh, then he says, Go get water. And he says, Pour water all over it. And so they do that. And then he says, Do it again. And they do it again. He says, Do it again. And they do it again. And he says, Stand back. Right? And he gets on his knees. And he says, Lord, be God, right? And out of the sky, fire comes and ignites it. it, I mean, totally immolates the whole altar. And even the water in the trench is ignited on fire. It's this astounding moment to where the people cry out God's personal name. They say, Yahweh, he is God. I mean, they cry out, Yahweh, he is God. Yahweh, he is God. I'm telling you this whole story because, well, because, I mean, there's this great moment of profound worship where God is clearly God, and he's done this great thing. He's come down. God's power has come down to earth and displayed itself in all of its fullness, and they saw it with their own eyes. And the very next day, Elijah wakes up to a bounty on his head as though nothing ever happened. I mean, it's as though, uh, it's, to me it's fitting because it's like the life of Christ. Christ came down. The glory of God was displayed among the Jewish people. They saw. The Pharisees saw him do signs and wonders and miracles. The glory of God was fully displayed. And it's like a day later, And they want to have nothing of it. And so Elijah runs away. He runs away. He even lets his servant go. He runs away and he, he gets to a low place and he cries out to the Lord. He says, Lord, just take my life. My life has been a failure, a total failure. Even my forefathers, we must have failed you. We have failed you so badly because look, nobody's following you. This is just a total train wreck. Your people have become a train wreck. And he, he begs the Lord to take his life and falls asleep and wakes up and he's being ministered to by angels who are feeding him and caring for him. And they say, you need to get up and go. So for 40 days, 40 days, he travels south all the way to the mountain of God. And he gets to the mountain of God and he climbs into a cave. And the voice of the Lord comes to him and says, Elijah, why are you here? And he says, he says this, He says, Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've demolished your altars. I alone am left, and they seek my life. And God says, come out of the cave. Stand at the face of the mountain. And he does, and then, Lord sends wind and storm and earthquakes and fire, and it says, God is in none of that. And then at last, a whisper comes back, and he, God echoes the very same question. He says, why are you here? And Elijah says the same thing. He says, we've forsaken your, your prophets. We've torn down your altars. I alone am left. And it's there that the Lord says says several things. Most of them sound like, get up, you have work to do. And at the very end of it, he said, the Lord says, and by the way, I have reserved 7,000 in the land who have not yet bowed to me, nor kissed the statue of Baal. I mean, the whole story matters because when it's coming here to a people who are very lonely, has God left us? Has God abandoned us? He, he brings them in the story. He brings them to that place in the mountain to say, relax. Like, I have work for you to do. And I'm in control. I'm in control. I mean, think of the phrase, I have reserved for myself 7,000. In, in that sentence is, is all the power of God, right? This idea of, Of who's at work. I mean, when God says things like that, it just reminds us that God is at work despite what we can see, despite what we can measure, despite all the things that we have, right? The eyes of Elijah, just like the eyes of Christians, we observe failure, we observe shortcomings, we observe all these things. We make huge judgments with our tiny little eyes. We see numbers, and we see popularity, and we look at trends, and there's times when we feel like there's just no possible way that God could still be in this. Or, We think far too much of our individual actions. So we pour our life out towards the Lord doing something and it doesn't generate the kind of response that we wanted and we assume God must have failed. But God is so much bigger. God's so much bigger than our tiny little space and our tiny little perception and all the the little things that we see. And here the Lord just reminds him of that. Listen, 7,000 you've never even met are worshiping me in the land right now. Verse five says this, so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. In the same manner there is a faithful remnant. Uh, Again, this is about Israel. But there is something in God's nature He is like this. So this is about Israel, but he is also like this. The Lord allows things to bend and not break sometimes. You know, there's times I think that even in my own life, the Lord's desire is that only a remnant of me would remain because God does more with a remnant than he does with all that we have to give him. In Corinthians, it talks about how we're buried in mortality and raised in immortality. The image is a seed. You know, it's God, this little thing is buried and out of it. I mean, what God does out of a remnant of you in faith. I mean, the Lord has to tear so much of us away to bring new birth. But what he does, and all that's left is just a little bit of what started. I mean, he does so much out of that. Verse six. How is this remnant selected? Verse well, verse 5 says they're chosen by grace. And verse 6 comes behind to bolster it because he's writing to the very people who would miss the point. But if it's grace, but if it's by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace would no longer be grace. The, they remain on account of grace. How is the remnant selected? Grace. That's important to remember because we're people who want to be the best of the best, the cream of the crop, the top shelf, the elite, the remainder. Right? We have this sense of, oh, well, if God's going to have a remnant, ha-ha, I'm in the remnant. Well, that's good to know. It's good to know there's just a remnant. Because in our minds, I mean, certainly in the minds of those listening, if, it's just, if only a remnant is going to make it, well, we know who that remnant will be. I mean, here, it, it, the whole point of the, these, these people and their ears, their ears had grown accustomed to this attitude. They, they understood remnant. When God took Israel into exile, he used the word remnant. They understood the idea of remnant. When God saved the world through Noah and his family, they understood remnant. Remnant is old school to these people. Chosen by grace is not. should be, but it's not to their ears. The way they get into the remnant is through hard labor and through observing custom. And Paul is saying, No, God will preserve a remnant for himself, but it will be based upon grace. And in this letter, that's code. In this letter, grace is the gift that God gives those who have faith. This letter, the way the work of God. All the work of God, the death and resurrection of Christ, God sending His Son, the revelation of God's truth through Scripture, all of that reaching down to grab onto the hand of man. When it finally meets the hand of man, the hand of God is called grace. And in this letter, all that, all that is in us that responds to God from our conviction to sin our awareness of not being able to respond to his call to righteousness in a laborious way that we cannot be righteous the way he would have us be righteous, but this desire to be with God and to respond by reaching out to Jesus Christ when we grab his hand, that's called faith. Grace is a label. It's code in Romans for the work of God and faith is the responsive man. In other words, the remnant, the remnant that will exist, the remnant that remains, is a remnant that that comes only by grace. Meaning there is no one in heaven who thinks they ought to be there. There is no one in heaven who thinks they are the cream of the crop. And there is no one in heaven who thinks they are cut above the rest. Because if they did, they would not have received the grace of God. Because grace comes by faith. Faith gains us grace. Which means those who are in heaven, those who are with God, those who are the remnant, because the truth of the matter is, right? Again, this is an Israelite story. This is, this is technically about the Israelites. And, and in the next several weeks, we'll, we'll be continue to be attentive to that idea. But the general idea of a remnant, the truth is, is that all the world, the whole world, we should never expect, really, that the whole world is going to be in for the story of Jesus. The gospel of Jesus is... Almost in its nature, a remnant theology. Wide is the path that leads to destruction, and narrow is the path that leads to eternal life. That's Jesus saying, listen, do not expect this message to appeal to the broad audience. It's for a remnant who will come by faith and receive the grace of God. I mean, there's a sense that if you just whittle the whole world down, right? Right? Of all the people in the world, most people believe there's a God. Not all, but most. And of that number, of those that believe in God, many of those that believe in God, not all of them, but many of them believe that God is personal. And of the many, a good number of those, many, not all of them, but a good number of them believe that God is moral. You know, and of the all, of most, and then of the many, and of the good number, some of those Not all of the good number, but some of the good number believe that that moral God, that at the center of this moral God is is a relationship, that the problem between us is the fact that God is holy and righteous and we're not, that that sin is the problem. Only, Only some of all the world think that. And of those some, only a few of the some rely on Jesus Christ to bridge that. That means of all the world and of the most and of, of the many and of the good number and of the sum, only a few, only a few, will ever cry out for the grace of Jesus Christ. God has not abandoned us. This is the way, this is the path to the Lord and the path is by grace. It's not by what we've done, it's not by our culture, it's not by our observances, it's by grace, which means we we when faith reach to God and God in grace reaches to us. That is the gift of God. Last year we did this, uh, we spent time in Romans, in in chapter 5 we started, I just want to read 5 verse 2 to you, well I'll read 5, 1 and 2 to you, therefore since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now listen to the relationship of faith and grace, through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. You want to be part of the remnant. Uh, You don't want to be a cream of the crop. You don't want to be the best of the best. You want to be the few, the faithful. (laughs) You know? You want to be full of faith. You don't need to be good. You need to want Jesus. Amen. Let me pray. Lord, we have in us a commission to tell the whole world and a knowledge uh, that a remnant will remain. Uh, We have in us, Lord, a desire uh, that loved ones, family, friends, that everyone we know and care for would, would know you. Uh, but the knowledge, Lord, that the message doesn't alter. There's no alteration of your word to accommodate the preferences and, and uh, the feelings of the public, Lord. You're not running for office. You're not seeking to validate, numerically validate your message. Your message stands. It stands upright, even if you follow. Lord, what we can pray for, Lord, is that the message we would give people would, would rightly show them the faith, that they might respond with faith. Lord, we can pray that people might come and receive your grace. Lord, it seems in my heart to ask for the largest possible remnant that we could have. Lord, this is sure. You protect, you protect your word and your will. It will not fail. It will not falter until all the world is heard. And then the end will come, Lord. Make us faithful uh, to you during that time, Lord. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.